0: This talk was given by Vanessa Zuisei-Goddard-Sensei. Zuisei-Sensei is a lay teacher in the Mountains and Rivers Order. This talk, like all of her talks, is offered free of charge. If you'd like to make a donation to find out more about her teachings or to join her mailing list, please visit her website at vanessazuisei Thanks for listening. We are warmed by fire not by the smoke of the fire. We are carried over the sea by a ship, not by the wake of a ship. So too, what we are is to be sought in the invisible depths of our own being, not in our outward reflection in our own acts. We must find our real selves not in the froth stirred up by the impact of our being upon the beings around us, but in our own soul, which is the principle of all our acts. This is Thomas Merton, and I'd been looking at one of his books, No Man is an Island, and this quote caught my eye. And if we change the the wording slightly at at the end of the quote here, we must find our real selves not in the froth stirred up by the impact of our being upon the beings around us, but in selflessness, which is the principle the basic truth of all our acts. Of course, he's, he's speaking of the soul. And I think he's really, he's saying that we must know ourselves deeply, not just look at the surface of our acts to find out who we actually are and to find the real, the meaning, the basis of who we are that we must know ourselves so that we may not just reflect, react, deflect, but truly come from the clarity that is, that is seeing the basic ground of our being, as Tharo used to call it, which is selfless, and that this is what should guide all of our actions. And last time I gave a talk, he had another quote on on sincerity. And he was really speaking about sincerity among sangha, you know, in a community. Sincerity among people who are trying to be awake to who they are and to each other. And who are doing their best to do exactly that, knowing how difficult it is to be sincere, to be honest with one another when we don't always know ourselves or one another. And I have always felt you know, that this practice is not, um, is not complete if it's not helping us to do exactly that. You know, no, matter, no matter how many koans we pass, no matter how far along we go in our training, if it's not helping us to actually get in touch with ourselves and to actually see each other, then it is, it's not fully working. And can it, can it do that? Can practice actually um, help us to get closer, to actually be in touch? I think, I think that it can. But do we always want to do it? No, I don't think so. Because it does require, in you know, a certain degree of, of openness, uh, it, it requires a degree of openness of sincerity, that can be frightening, you know, or at the very least, very threatening, to my sense of me. And will do almost anything to protect me, to protect me and mine. In the identity of relative and absolute that we chanted. We say, and we chant this every week, every Sunday, and we say, to encounter the absolute is not yet enlightenment. So we can't say, it's not enough to say, well, the self is empty. Because we live as if it isn't. We live not knowing that it is. And so the fact is, we do need to recognize the wake of the ship. The froth stirred up by the impact of our beings of our being on other beings. Because, indeed, we're not islands living independently. So in order to be clear, we need to see everything. We need to see our light and our darkness. We need to be willing to see our light and our darkness. We have to be willing to know that we feel, and what we feel and how what we feel affects others. And of course this seems so self-evident that we feel we're sentient beings, of course we feel, but do we actually know that as it's happening? You know, are we caught off guard? Do we, Is sometimes is so common, do we know after the fact, through a dream, or through a burst of anger or a sudden very strong emotion a certain confrontation that helps us to see oh I was sad I was upset I was angry I was confused and sometimes we do feel so much that to protect ourselves really just to cope just to keep going we just shut down And even as we recognize this, uh, it's sometimes very difficult to break through that veil. I know this well. You know where where there's a. It actually for me it actually feels almost as if I had been wrapped in a wet blanket, and there's just enough distance, just enough distance to feel a little safer. And my voice, even, and I can hear in my voice, it gets just a little. Distant, just a little official, and up. Is that better? And you know, usually when I look at it closely, it has to do with the fact that I'm feeling something and I'm saying something else. So there's a gap. There's a a little bit of a if not a disconnect if not an outright disconnect, which sometimes is true, uh, uh, and being out of phase. And really, it has to do with me wanting to protect me. And sometimes I tell myself that it's to protect the other person, but really, it is to protect me. And it doesn't feel great to have that, to feel that distance, to feel that disconnect, but it doesn't feel terrible either. And I think that's why we can live there for a little while. Because there is something about it that is uh, comforting enough that we're willing to be there. And, and we know there is this distance. And, and even as that part of us wants to reach out and break through that veil, you know, that blanket, there is something very safe about not doing that. But sometimes, you know, if we really are paying attention, if we are a little bit more awake, we realize it does feel, it feels like a shroud, and there is a little bit of dying that happens in it. And so, sometimes, if we're lucky, you know, we realize we want to live too much to let it take us. And so, we turn to anger. And I don't think we do it consciously often, but... It happens. And I think, you know, when we realise that the, the embers are cold, that they're dying, we do need a spark to reignite things. And when we're angry we know that we're feeling. We may not necessarily know why, we may not necessarily know what we're feeling, but we know we're feeling. Things are happening. We're interacting. And so there is there's a little bit of life there. And so, I've often thought that it's not surprising that it's so compelling. And it feels good, and it feels empowering to be angry. It's certainly better than feeling helpless. And so, although it is true that anger appears, you know, Shugan Sensei said recently, we don't sit here and think, I'm going to get angry, I choose to get angry. But often, you know, when it's, when it's there, we do feed it. You know, we do choose to keep it going because there's something happening. You know, have you ever been stuck in that kind of in-between space? You're not really angry, but you're too embarrassed or confused to admit what's really going on. And so you raise your voice and you slam doors and you make an all-around fuss just to break through what's happening, you know, until things normalize. And you can see it. There's a part of you that can see you doing this. And you you kind of know that you're faking it, or that you're exaggerating at the very least, but you can't help it. You just have to move through it. And I think that's the thing about practice. It kind of spoils your uh, Tantrums. (laughs) Tantrums. <laughs> because when you see what you're doing, they, they lose their power. They become just a little, I don't know, embarrassing. And I'm not talking about uh, you know, the, that raw feeling, but what we do, what, the layers that we put over it. There's a story of a, of a man who came to Nagarjuna. Who, and he wanted to study with him. And what first attracted him to the teacher was he thought he was very, he'd never seen somebody so beautiful and so graceful. And so he approached him and said, you know, is there something here for me? Is there something of, of worth, of value that I can attain by studying with you? But you should know that I'm a thief. And this is just how it is. I have tried to stop being a thief and it's never worked. So I've just given up. I've accepted that this is who I am. And so I don't want to discuss it. I don't want to talk about it with you. You should just know that this is how it is. And Nagarjuna said, Why, why are you worried? I mean, I'm fine. Who's going to talk about you being a thief? And the man said, well, every time I go to a priest or a monk or another religious figure, they always say to me, yes, you can study with me, but first you have to stop stealing. And Nagarjuna just laughed at him and said, well, you must have gone to thieves then. Because I don't care. I'm not a thief. So if you want to steal, that's fine. It's your problem. It's your issue. If you want to steal, that's fine. Choose to steal. And if you don't want to steal, that's okay, too. The only thing that I ask is that you be completely aware. That's all. And the thief said, okay, that seems fair enough, easy enough. You seem to be a good teacher. You seem to be a teacher for me. So I'll do that. I'll do that. And so Nagarjuna said, okay, so then you go and wander and do whatever you want. And as I said, just be aware. As you break into a house, as you're stealing, just be aware. That's all. And the thief said, okay, I'll try. And then three weeks went by, and he came back to Nagarjuna and said, you're tricky. Because when I'm aware, I can't steal. And if I'm stealing, my awareness disappears. So now I'm in a little bit of a bind And Nagarjuna said, what are you talking about? And and, and why are we still discussing you being a thief and stealing? And I told you, I don't really care. You can do whatever you want. If you want to be a thief, decide. If you don't want to be a thief, decide. It's up to you completely. And the man said, yes, but it's difficult. You know, the other day I went into the king's palace. I'd been trying to get in there for years. I finally did it. And I got into the room where he had this treasure. And if I'd taken it, I would have been the richest man in the world. But you were with me, you were following me, and so I did what you said, I was aware. And as I did that, these jewels looked just like ordinary stones. And I said to myself, what am I doing? What am I doing looking at getting these stones, ordinary stones, losing myself in them? And then in a moment I would miss, I would lose my awareness. And in that moment the treasure looked beautiful again. And just to be sure I waited and I did this a number of times. And every time it was the same thing. I could either steal or I could be aware. I couldn't have both. And so finally I decided that it just it wasn't worth it. And so he shaved his head and became Nagarjuna's disciple. And I think that's exactly what happens you know, when you become aware. Your your story uh, loses its luster. And again, you know, I want to make a clear distinction of that's. Uh, I'm not talking about the the feeling, the feeling of being hurt, of being betrayed, of being wronged but the story that we create around it, because to, to feel that raw feeling is almost unbearable, and at times it feels impossible, impossible to stay with. And the story I've, I've felt, I've always felt is um, actually necessary, I think to some, to some extent, because this is how we make sense of what, we're experiencing. So there's nothing wrong, actually, with a story. I love stories. It's just when that is, um, when that takes a life of its own. And then it's, I think, increasingly difficult to actually get in touch with what is happening. And perhaps that raw pain is the most difficult thing to bear. I've told some of you the story of when I was in the Zendo where Tendo is sitting, I was monitor for Seshin, and something very difficult had, had happened in my life. And it was probably the closest time that I've been to leaving, to getting up and running out of the Zendo. And there's only two things that kept me on my seat. In the beginning, it was just my pride. I didn't, I was too embarrassed to get up and run out run out Um, but I think even that wouldn't have kept me you know the 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 pain was really just so unbearable I actually felt like I was uh, breaking into pieces it was the first time that I had felt it like that what actually really kept me here um, was you I thought to myself I've made a commitment to them as a Sangha, and they've made a commitment to me, the, part, the fact that we're part of this group. And if I can't sit here for me, I'll do it for them. And that's the only thing that kept me on my seat, actually. And so what I did is I tried to the best of my ability to really actually get in touch with what, was, what I was feeling. And at first it was just a thought and then another thought and then I would get angry. And I would say to myself, that's just a story. Can you get under it? And so I would be able to drop a little bit and see, okay, what's the feeling, excruciating pain. And that, you know, even just saying that is already, there's a little bit of distance. It was just trying to get with a physical sensation in my body. And the longer that I stayed with it, the more I realized it's actually going to be okay. It's not going to kill me what I am feeling now. And as I've said many times before, knowing that I could do that, that I could be with what I was experiencing once, I knew I could do this, I can do this again. And not only that, that I would be okay, that that was within my ability to do, and that I was not alone. I mean, I was, you know, in my own little hell there on my seat, but that there was all of you. But I think that is why honesty is such a demanding spiritual practice. There's that monk, and I tried to uh, find the source, but I I couldn't, that monk who said, um, somebody asked him, what is your ascetic practice? And he said, it is that I don't deceive myself, and I don't deceive others. And how difficult that is to, to say to yourself, this is what I feel. And this is why, if you know. Merton says that sincerity is impossible without humility and love. He says, I cannot be candid with others unless I understand myself and unless I am prepared to do everything possible in order to understand them. And I think that's, that's it in a nutshell. We have to be prepared to do everything possible in order to understand ourselves and each other. And, and last time I, I had a, 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 one of his quotes that I didn't, I mean, I just read and I was thinking about it a little bit more just to flesh it out. You know, he says, your idea of me is fabricated with materials you have borrowed from other people and from yourself. And so your idea of me has a lot of me in it. I borrow material from what others say about you and from what I know, think I know about you, and I create an image that conforms, conforms with what I think you are. And in doing so, the real you recedes and sometimes even disappears with time. And what I think, what you think of me depends on what you think of yourself. So, you know, if you like me, then your idea of me will support, it will enhance, it will highlight what you like about yourself. If I like you, I will create you in my image to reinforce that very image. But if I don't like you, or if you've hurt me, then I will slowly pick that image apart. Perhaps, uh, he says, perhaps you create your idea of me out of material that you would like to eliminate from your idea of yourself. The people that push my buttons the most are those who exhibit those qualities of myself that are difficult for me to accept. Or they show behavior that I secretly wish I could do but I'm afraid to, or I'm embarrassed to, or I don't allow myself to even know. You know, I say to myself all the time, you know, I don't want to be selfish, I don't want to be entitled, but really a part of me does. You know, a part of me does exactly want to be selfish and entitled because other people do it, so why shouldn't I? And in the past, I've called that, that part of me the empire of me because it's very much how I experience it, very much how it feels like. The me that lords it over everybody else, and over that part of me that does actually sincerely want to wake up, that sincerely wants to be free. And so a lot of the time, these two sides just duke it out. I just fight. But the good thing is, You know, I'm persistent, and I don't have anything more worthwhile to do than to learn to to live peacefully with me and with you. So when I'm a little... I was going to say smarter, but I I guess really it's um, honest or being more in touch. I give those two sides, you know, the empire of me and the me that does want to see selflessness, I give them all the space that I can muster up. Maybe like sitting in that cushion and just creating enough space to hold that difficult feeling. Because as far as I can tell, you can't really reason with the empire of me. It's too powerful, it's too compelling and it has too much support. You know, all those years, all that built up karma that now I'm working so hard to soften into, to see, to liberate. So arguing with it, reasoning with it doesn't doesn't quite work. But so often when you give it space and awareness, then it just withers up. Or there's just enough of that that distance that seen one way is, is, is that gap and it is that dullness. And seen another way can actually be that liberation. Just enough space to realize, oh, that feeling is not me. It's just what I'm feeling at this moment. And I don't have to be a prisoner of it. Merton ends by saying, perhaps your idea of me is a reflection of what other people think of you. Or perhaps what you think of me is simply what you think I think of you. I think this is mostly true. You know, I'm angry at you, at what you've done or haven't done. But not really. I'm angry at what you think, what I think you've done. The fact is, most of the time, we don't really know. We don't know what's going on inside ourselves so often. It's so much harder to know what's going on inside somebody else. But sometimes it's just easier. It's easier to proceed as if we do know. Because asking you means I have to be willing to see what's going on inside of me, and I don't know if I'm ready to do that. And so we do float like islands, you know, in that frothy sea, often th- thinking certain that there's nobody suffering quite like I'm suffering. It's, it's strange how that um, imagined loneliness gives us a sense of comfort. And it makes us feel special. and at the same time, how good it feels when you have an inkling that somebody else actually knows what you're feeling, has experienced the same thing you're experiencing. I think one thing about um, any kind of relationship and it's uh, Sangha is no exception, is that at some point we will deeply disappoint each other. And sometimes disappointment is actually too um, light of a word or too narrow of a word. Sometimes we will be crushed by each other. And I think that disappointment is not only... Uh, inevitable it is necessary if we're to have a long and lasting relationship we will disappoint each other because at a certain point we have to get past the idea we have to get past the picture that I've painted of you and you of me and see the whole person, see the whole being so I I actually do feel it's an integral part of what it means To understand each other, to truly see each other, meet each other. But when these feelings appear, when they are there and they do become more evident, or we're able to see them more, feel them more, then what? You know, even when we know that. Being angry is a bomb for my pain. Even if I know that, what do I do with that anger? With that sadness, with that regret, with whatever it is. And I think really the first thing is to name it. To name it, you know, that simple act of naming it uh, acts like a release valve. You know, it's, it just takes the energy surrounding the feeling and it, it dissipates it a little bit so you can start to work with what's going on. And people have often asked, you know, what, are, what good are koans, the traditional koans? What do they have to do with my life now? And I think one of the things that they do is exactly that. They teach you. They, you get a lot of training, a lot of practice in learning to discern what's the most important thing about a particular issue. You know what's just extra? What are my ideas about this and what is actually the experience? They, they pare down all the extra. And also to trust the body. Martha Graham said that the body never lies. I think the body always knows what's going on. We don't always know, our mind doesn't always know, but the body always knows what's going on. And it will tell you. It will tell you what you feel and what you need to do to deal with it. But you know, we have to be very quiet and to pay attention. I've always experienced it. First, it's a whisper. And often when I don't like it, I just push it aside. You know, maybe it's something that I didn't really want to feel, or it would create a bit of a disturbance if I went with it. And so I just ignore it. But after a while, and maybe because we sit so much, after a while it just keeps getting louder and louder, until at a certain point there's, I can't think of nothing else. It's like somebody screaming in my ear. And so I've learned. I've learned to pay attention earlier. And if you still don't know, look around you. you know, the sangha will tell you what's going on. I believe that's one of the hardest and best and most important things we do for one another. That, that image of, of the rocks being polished as we, as we rub against each other. Um, I think it's true in any circumstance where you put a group of people together. But when you add to that the willingness, the, the desire, the aspiration to wake up, then everything changes. Because we, we can do for one another what sometimes we cannot do for ourselves. And you know, you know, you know, where shutting the door and going back into yourself will lead you. And your own voice can sometimes be very loud and very convincing, and not wrong, but just limited. It's limited. And so, instead, you know, we need something to cut through it, or something that that stops us in our tracks, or that creates just enough of that distance, as I said. To, to help you to see in a different way. And to use liturgy. There is so much so that we can do with, with liturgy. Formal liturgy, we do it all the time. But personally... You know, you're you're finding ways for yourself to um, to stop, to turn your mind in a particular direction. It's what we're doing with liturgy. We're invoking a particular reality at each moment. And just because it's there's no physical result, doesn't mean that it's any less powerful. Sometimes a word is enough, you know, to, to turn us, or a moment of silence, or finding ways to be in your body that are, bypass is not the right word, but in a sense they, they go through that mind, that story. All those different Ways, small and large ways to investigate those invisible depths of my being. And maybe, you know, maybe to remember that. There's so much that it happens, you know, in in practice, there's so much that happens when we take this seat and turn towards ourselves. Um, And so much of it is known and so much of it is not known and needs to unfold with time. That a lot of it is just giving things time. So maybe that, that first quote uh, by, by Merton, you know, from our perspective, maybe it's, it would be more accurate to say that that smoke is, in fact, the fire. That when we see smoke, that is in, no different from the fire. And that the wake of the ship is that ship. That you can't separate the two. And so actually seeing the impact of our actions on others truly going into the impact of our actions on others is helping us to see the depths of who we are. And that what we are at any moment can be a stirred up, frothy sea. Or it can be calm and fathomless. And usually most of the time it's one thing one moment and the the other thing the next. And do we have space for that truth. You know, I was telling somebody earlier after my brother died, in one moment, because I was really trying to look at my mind, in one moment I would be just racked with grief, and in the next moment I would be thinking about potato chips. And in the next moment I would think about going for a run, and then the next moment I was feeling that grief again. And that what I wasn't trying to direct my experience, my feeling that that was actually how it was and that that was okay that I wasn't being any less um, true to him or to what I felt about him for thinking about potato chips that's just what the mind does I think, it's a survival mechanism and so that I had here that that what, whether it's that frothy sea or um, that calm, fathomless ocean, that it depends on what we're willing to see about ourselves, but I don't actually think that's true. I think sometimes it is just froth, and it is stirred up, and at other times it's not. And that's what I started to say. Maybe it's just actually about creating space and nothing else or that that's the basis that for every one of these experiences there is room that it's okay to feel what you feel and that it's okay to be confused and it's okay to be angry and um, whatever it is that we feel because it's me it's my mind the one thing I do believe, or I wouldn't still be here, is that it's completely possible to be awake. Completely awake. And that there's times where that will feel almost impossible, or that will feel very distant, or that will feel... Like maybe it was a promise that somebody made, but they couldn't quite keep. And underneath that, I think it is still possible to be completely awake. And that we do it, and we do it little by little, and every day, every time we turn to this seat, when we don't want to, when we can't, and that we still do it because there is a part of us that knows that's maybe never been apart from that very depth of our being. For more talks, to get information about Zuisé Sensei's upcoming teachings or to join her email list, please visit Vanessa's we Say